Hello, everyone. A very good morning to you. When I first became a follower of Jesus Christ uh, some 37 years ago, a friend introduced me to books uh, by the same author, and it's an author by the name of Paul Little. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his uh, writing. And the two books entitled, what, uh, Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe. Know what you believe and know why you believe. So at the very early uh, days as a believer, I read of those two books. One is Know Exactly What I Believe In, and second part of it is Know Why I Believe. Uh, knowing why does strengthen our conviction on our beliefs, and it motivates you as well with greater strength and greater uh, confidence in what you believe in. And so apologetic is like this. Apologetic is about strengthening what you believe in, uh, not just only in terms of presenting the account to another uh, non-believer, but it's also good for us as believers, uh, strengthen why we believe what we believe. And so today, I just want to, as the last Sunday of May, uh, before we embark on the new series of study from the book of Exodus, uh, I just have one more sermon on the apologetic, and, and subsequently every fourth week uh, we'll pick up on that topic again. So today I want to touch on a very important topic on why I believe in Jesus. Uh, why believe in Jesus? You know, it, it has been said that Elvis Presley's final book that he read was a book called The Many Faces of Jesus. Uh, that title stands, I think, as a fitting symbol of the confusion around surrounding Jesus in our time. There are many, many, uh, uh, it's been 2,000 years, and all men still debate about Jesus Christ. Who really is Jesus Christ? And of all the questions that might be posed to modern men and women, none is more important than this. And it is not, it certainly is not a new question. It is as old as the coming of Christ to earth. And once in uh, Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 16. Once when Jesus took his disciples on a retreat to a place called Caesarea Philippi, he asked them this question. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. 13, and this is what it says in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And then they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But verse 15, Jesus is not interested in what other people think. Jesus said, but what about you? And maybe there's a question that we need to ask you as well at the end of the sermon. What about you? Jesus said, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Of course, this is the conclusion that I hope all of us who are 
who will come to that conclusion. Uh, not saying that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, or some say uh, a misunderstood rabbi, the revolutionary Jesus, the ecumenical Christ, a good man, a prophet, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of God's law, the embodiment of God's love, a reincarnated spirit master, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, Savior, the first century wise man, a man just like any other man, or king of kings, a misunderstood teacher, Lord of the universe, a deluded religious leader, a fabrication of the early church. There are all kinds of view uh, people think of Jesus. And it is my prayer that you and I were at the end of the sermon can firmly say that Jesus is the Son of God. Messiah, the son of the living God. One author, one American author says that the Jews tried to keep Christ contained within their law, while the Greeks sought to turn him into a philosophy. The Romans made of him an empire, the Europeans reduced him to a culture, and we Americans had made a business out of him. Let me read to you some... Uh, uh, historian what they think of Jesus. And then I want to give you five points on why I believe in Jesus. Possibly seven if we have time. Uh, if not, we just start to stick to five. H.G. Wells says this. He said, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And another author says, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50 years, Aristotle for 40 years, and Jesus for only three years. And yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from this man who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Fyodor Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist, said, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone like him. No one could surpass him. And finally, a Swiss-born theologian, Philip Saf, said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, Learned, learned volumes, works of art and songs of praise than a whole army of great men of ancient and modern 
times. Who is Jesus Christ? I, I want to uh, give you five points. I want to base on Scripture, uh, partly because all the things that talk about Jesus is truly, uh, look at the most reliable source of information about Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It is true that we do have some information uh, about Jesus in extra-biblical sources from the first century, but it is limited and scattered, and the only way to get an accurate picture of Jesus is to study the record of his life found in the four Gospels. And when we do that, I think there are five very important facts emerge that form the answer to, I believe, the history's greatest question. Who is Jesus Christ? I use the scripture. I'll leave it to Pastor Caroline in uh, next month apologetics uh, who will touch on uh, the scripture. How can we really trust the Bible? I'll just go down the pathway of taking from the scripture. The first point that I believe for myself, why I believe in Jesus, is very simple. Fact number one is a fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. I remember on Easter Sunday, I did briefly talk about uh, fulfilled prophecy. The Bible uses a fascinating phrase, did you know, to describe the moment of Jesus' birth. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, the phrase is the fullness of time. It refers to that one chosen moment in history when God arranged all the circumstances perfectly so that His Son would be born in just the right way at the right moment at the precisely chosen location. And that phrase also refers to the, all the circumstances of His life including his death and resurrection. It was the right time spiritually. It was the right time culturally. It was the right time politically for Jesus to appear at the time. Prophecies, there are, as I mentioned on Easter Sunday, there are 300 over prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled about 300 over prophecies. The Bible was written by about 40 authors, spanned across 1,500 years. And all write and prophesize about Jesus, that he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah, that he will be born in Bethlehem in Micah, that he will be born into the tribe of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, that his ministry will begin in Galilee, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, that he will work miracles, Isaiah chapter 6, Sorry, Isaiah 61. That he would teach in parables, Psalm 78. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah chapter 9. That he would be betrayed by a friend, Psalms 41. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. That he would be accused by false witnesses, Psalms 35. That he would be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53, that his hands and his feet will be pierced, Psalms 22, that he will be crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, that his garments will be torn apart and lots cast for them, Psalms 22, that his bones would not be broken, Psalms 34, verse 20, that his sight would be pierced, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 that he will be buried in a rich man's tomb, 
Isaiah 53 verse 9. That he will rise from the dead, Psalm 16 verse 10. These are only few of the hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And some of them are not yet fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in the future when Christ returns. The list is striking in the amount of detail surrounding especially the death of Jesus Christ. Even a casual reader must admit that either this is an amazing coincidence or it is a result of divine planning. The amazing coincidence is a bit far stretched in the sense. Fakers can't fulfill prophecies. They can't direct the circumstances of their birth and death. Jesus' fulfillment of such prophecies shows he was no fake. And so I believe that any uh, fair-minded person or honest uh, skeptic, when they look at the fulfilled prophecies, I think is sufficient to cause them to think of who Jesus Christ really is. I remember it was, uh, I think it's Ravi Zacharias that was the one that said that most of the time, for intellectuals, uh, when we turn away from the gospel and, and, and looking at the evidence and all that, it has nothing to do with intellectual issue. It is everything to do with moral issue. So we reject Jesus Christ. It's not based on intellectual, uh, n- unable to fulfill, but it has always to deal with moral and not intellectual. Because when we come and accept Jesus, then you accept Him as Lord. And it is something that many people refuse to acknowledge. So the first fact that I believe, why I believe in Jesus, is the fulfilled prophecies. And the second, the second one is even more amazing. It is his amazing claims. It is his amazing claims. Jesus made some incredible, astounding claims concerning himself that you really have to sit back and investigate of what actually he said about himself. If you catalog his own words, you must conclude that either he is who he said he is, or he is some crazy guy or, or lunatic or a liar. The people who say Jesus was a good man, nothing more, have never read the gospel because you could never come to that conclusion if you actually read what Jesus said about himself. So I want to give you a few, just a few uh, based on the gospel, what Jesus claimed about himself. Firstly, he claimed to be the son of God. And that is in our most favorite, most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. They say, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus claimed to be the son of God. He didn't claim himself just a, a moral, good moral teacher. Uh, um, he never says that. He, secondly, he claimed that the angels obeyed him. That is in Matthew 13, verse 41. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels. So he claimed that the angels will obey him. He even says, isn't it, uh, Peter, I don't need you. If I want, I can call upon legions of angels to come and rescue me. I don't need you, Peter. So he claimed that the angels will actually obey him. 
And then thirdly, he claimed to be the ultimate judge of all men. Can you imagine that claim? He claimed to be the ultimate judge of all men. And that is in John 5 verse 22. He said, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So Jesus will be the ultimate judge of all humanity. So that is his claim about himself. I will be the judge. Fourthly, he claimed to possess all power in heaven and on earth. Imagine that. The Great Commission say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He claimed to possess all power. Can you imagine that? That is what Jesus claimed about himself. I have all power. All, not some, not limited. All power is an astounding claim that we have to really think whether he is who you say he is or he is really, really crazy. And uh, next one is he claimed the power to forgive sin. The power to forgive sin. There's so many passages in the, in the uh, New Testament, especially the Gospel, that Jesus claimed the power to forgive sin. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Remember the, the four men in Mark's uh, uh, Gospel open up the roof and lower down this man. Is it easy for, for me to say, uh, um, rise up and walk or what? You know? uh, uh, your, your sin is forgiven or rise up and walk. Uh, your sins are forgiven. And say to the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. Jesus claimed to forgive sin. He claimed the power to forgive sin. Who can do that? Who can do that? The next one is he claimed that he could raise people from the dead. In John chapter 5, verse 28, all who are in the grave will hear his voice and they will come out. All who hear his voice will come out. And he, he did that in John chapter 11 uh, with the Lazarus account, isn't it? Come out, Lazarus, after he's been died for a few days. So he claimed that he could raise people from the dead and then he showed it. And the next one is that he claimed that he could raise himself from the dead. Can you imagine that? In John, again, chapter 10, verse 18, I have the authority to lay it down, my life, and I have the authority to take it up again. He says that about his own life. I can lay it down and I can take it up again. Uh, again, it's an incredible, astounding claim about himself. Next one is he claimed to be one with God. He said in John chapter 10, again, I and the Father are one. He claimed, in essence, that he is God. I am God. I am God. I and the Father, we are one. We may have different functions, different roles, but we are one. And then the next one is he claimed to be only way to God. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he claimed that he's the only way to God. So he's not an ecumenical Christ that is just one of nice 
little master uh, among many, many other gods. I remember when I was in India, I went to street evangelism and uh, I asked this Indian brother, I said, do you believe in Jesus? He said, yes, I do. Uh, he said, come, come to my house. And one day when I went to his house for, for afternoon chai, uh, he brought in and then he went to the room. He had this figure of Ganesh and then he has this figure of Jesus. He has this figure of Buddha and then many, many other others. I believe in Jesus. Yes, why not? I believe. Because they believe in 300 million gods. Everything is God. Uh, but Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. And the last one that I want to give to you is that he claimed to be the giver of eternal life. Jesus claimed to be the giver of eternal life. In John chapter 10, verse 28, he said, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. When you really examine uh, what Jesus claimed about himself, it is astounding. It is unbelievable. It's, that's why I say you can only think that he's, he is really who he said he is, or he's absolutely a liar, and he's something lunatic. He's crazy about himself. But if you really investigate his life on earth and subsequent impact, you have no conclusion but to bow down and really worship this God who Jesus Christ is really God. Timothy Keller, a New York uh, Presbyterian minister who has been in, called as a new um, modern C.S. Lewis, uh, he wrote a book and he wrote this, he described Christ in this way. He said, they are the surprises of perfection, meaning Jesus, act and everything. Jesus, they are the surprises of perfections. He combines virtues never seen together. Tenderness without weakness. Strength without harshness. Humility without the slightest lack of confidence. Holiness with unbending conviction without lack of approachability. Power without insensitivity. Passion without prejudice. The harshest judgment on the self-satisfied and yet the most winsome kindness to the brokenhearted and the marginal. Never inconsistent, never a false step. That is Jesus Christ. Amazing claim about himself. So that is the second point that I, I believe, why I believe in Jesus, because of the fulfilled prophecies, amazing claims about himself. The third point that I want to give to you, the fact number three, is supernatural power. He has supernatural power. After all, he's God. I often wonder why people have problems with a virgin birth and, and resurrection when he's God. What is a God that who can't have supernatural power? When, remember when John the Baptist was in prison in Matthew chapter 11, uh, he sent his disciple because he, has, he, may, he may have a wrong image of who Jesus is supposed to be. And so he was a little bit concerned uh, what Jesus was doing. He was expecting Jesus to come as a warrior, and here Jesus was going around preaching love and peace and all that. And so he was a little bit confused. He said, why am I imprisoned? I was supposed to be maybe be his lieutenant to rule the, the world, and now I'm sitting in the prison. He was beginning to have a little bit of doubt. And so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? 
So someone said that John the Baptist went through this, this phase, this period of disillusionment, a bit of confusion whether or not Jesus was really the one. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus answered John's disciples. You, you take back this message to, to John. He said, while the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, and the dead are raised. No one could fix such miracles as that. No religious charlatan could give sight to the blind. Not even the great Houdini or David Copperfield or now Shin Lim or David Blaine or whatever. Uh, only the mighty Son of God could work such stupendous miracle. Let me, li- let me leave you, uh, give you a few highlights. Jesus turned water into wine. He multiplied the loaves and fishes. He walked on water. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the lame walk. He cast out demons. He stilled a raging storm. He cleansed ten lepers. He raised the dead and on and on and on and on. Many, many miracles that Jesus is able to perform. He has such supernatural power because He is God. He's not just a good man or a good moral teacher. I remember reading a book, I think, I can't remember, I think it's John McCarter's book on, on um, the gospel according to Jesus. He recounts about this story about this Indian man, Indian guru, one Swami, uh, who believed that he could walk on water. And so he gathered around these thousands of thousands of people. He advertised and said that, wow, this particular day, I'm going to walk on water. And so thousands and thousands of people gathered around him on that particular day to watch him walk on water. And so the day arrived, and the moment came when he is about to prove that he has the power to walk on water. And then this Swami Walk up to the edge of the pool, look up into heaven, mumble some words, close his eyes, and say some sort of prayer, and then he took his first step out into the water. And then, he disappeared from the air and into the pool. And then he was embarrassed, he crawled out of the pool. And then he just whacked his fingers on all his audience. He said, some of you here have no faith. That's a convenient way to say that you can't walk on water because someone else has no faith, isn't it? So, but Jesus has supernatural power. He can do it, everything. The fourth fact that I want to give to you Uh, why I believe in Jesus is the empty tomb. The empty tomb, which I covered a little bit more on Easter Sunday on the resurrection. The empty tomb. This is, of course, to me, the ultimate proof. There is one uh, apology. It's called William Crick. Uh, He only, his apologetic debate and all that is only on resurrection. He would debate anyone on that, on... uh, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
is the ultimate proof. The whole issue resolved down to one central question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? If he did, then he really was the Son of God. If he didn't, then he's not the Son of God. In, in fact, I, I would say that if he didn't, he's not even a good man. He, he's probably the world's greater, greatest faker or con man. And we are fools for following him. And especially me and Pastor Kenona as a pastor, we are, we are preaching, we are teaching, we are, we, are, we are telling you about all these things. As what uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, you are the most pitied of all if you, if you believe all your life and end up it is not true. The entire Christian faith hangs on this one fact. Jesus rose from the dead, literally, physically, bodily, visibly. It is the testimony of the empty tomb that forever sets Jesus Christ apart from all other religious leaders. They are dead. He's alive today. Hope Caesar. Do you know this resurrection? There are so much of implications that comes along with it. Because hope Caesars if there is no hope beyond the grave. I remember before I started uh, Sun Life Church, I took about a year off. And in that one year, I did uh, a carer course so that I can work in the nursing home, support myself, and uh, uh, to start the church where you have to support yourself church was not able to support me at that time. And I remember uh, uh, once working in a nursing home, I'm bringing this lady to uh, her room to put her to bed. And I usually try to strike up some conversation with them. And then I'll just look around the room and see whether or not I can have some conversation based on those things that's in the room. And I said, hey, who is this man? Who is this? He said, oh, he's my husband. I said, where is he now? She said, I don't know. But you know what? You know what? I will give up anything to meet him again. I will give up anything just to be with him again. Because he's such a beautiful, wonderful man. And I miss him so much. And at that moment, after I put her to bed, when I went off, I thought about it. I said, if your worldview... If your belief system doesn't include life after death, it is very cruel. It is basically saying that uh, uh, there's no hope beyond the grave. What is it that it gives a widow courage as she stands beside a fresh grave? What is the ultimate hope of the cripple, the amputee, the abused, the burned victim? How can the parents of brain damage or physically handicapped children keep from living their entire lives totally and completely depressed? Why would anyone who is blind or deaf or paralyzed be encouraged when they think of the life beyond? How can we see past the martyrdom of some helpless hostage or devout, devoted missionaries? Where do the thoughts of young couples go when they finally recover from the grief of losing their baby? When a family received the tragic news that a little daughter was found dead or their dad was killed in, in a plane crash or a son overdosed on drugs, what single truth becomes their whole focus? What is the final answer to pain, to mourning, to insanity, terminal diseases, sudden calamities and fatal accidents? I'd say one thing, 
and that is the hope of a bodily resurrection. That is our Christian hope because Christ has risen from the dead. Bodily, we will experience bodily resurrection. What sort of body, the scripture didn't tell us, but it is a bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection means there is a life beyond this one. A place where things will make sense, where God will rule, where evil will be vanquished. One, uh, one guy wrote this. He said, If the Holocaust raises massive problems for those who believe in God, it raises even greater ones for those who don't, who has no appeal to transcendent values, but is left with what Albert Camus called a hopeless encounter between human questioning and the silence of the universe. Francis Bridger makes the point by saying, what has atheism to say to the burning children? That the Holocaust was just one of those things? That it was merely an unfortunate fact of history? That it was a meaningless event in a meaningless cosmos? None of this is acceptable. Atheism is the most cruel hypothesis of all. For it says that in the end, injustice cannot be righted. Suffering cannot be redeemed. Evil triumphs after all. There is nothing more that atheists can say to the victims of Auschwitz, nor can he say more to anyone who wrestles with the problem of evil and suffering. Other than, of course, just say, how can you believe in a God when there's suffering and evil? That's the only thing they contribute to this problem because every belief system to me needs to provide answer and not just Christianity. So bodily resurrection, I believe in Jesus because of the empty tomb. Because Christ has risen, it gives us hope where this life on earth are not able to provide you that kind of life, that there is a hope of the future. It's not about pie in the sky, but there is a hope. There is a hope in the future. And hope is what many people live for. I remember in 1986 in Singapore, there was a, a mass national crusade, and they only have three words of advertisement. Everywhere, on the bars, on the train everywhere. Three words. There is hope. There is hope. And there was one testimony that came out from this man who took a bath and he saw this poster, there is hope. And he was in a hopeless situation. He lost his job. He was filing for bankruptcy. And uh, marriage fell apart. And he said, well, what do I have to lose? And so on that evening, he took a bus to the National Stadium. He sat there and listened to the South American evangelist, Luis Palau, who is suffering from cancer in his late 80s and uh, currently. And uh, that is hope. He came to the Lord and he's currently serving as a missionary in the Middle East. There is hope. Empty tomb gives us the hope. Of Jesus Christ. And finally, uh, fact number five, why I believe in Jesus is because of transformed lives. Transform lives. I cannot tell you, this is just incredible. Uh, when Jesus left this earth 2,000 years ago, he left behind a few hundred disciples in Israel. That's all he had to show for his 33 years and the three years of ministry. 
Today, well over a few billions of Christians across the globe. And thousands more join the ranks every single day. And to put, it, put matters in perspective, more people have come to Christ in the last generation than the previous 2,000 years. And the gospel continues to spread. And lives have constantly been transformed because people encounter Jesus. How has Jesus affected history the last 2,000 years? There's a book by Alvin Schumit. In fact, just a, just a couple of uh, a book, a, a short book, a small book that you can get it for internet for free. You can download in PDF account. How Christianity Changed the World. You can type in How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schumit. And she listed down so many of it. Transform, transformation of people, value of human life, human life sanctified, sexual morality, women receive freedom and dignity, slavery opposed, charity, compassion. How many of the NGOs started by believers, Christian, follower of Christ? You name it, Red Cross, Salvation Army, St. Vincent de Paul, universities, schools, countries like Malaysia, Singapore, India, even Muslim countries like Pakistan, where I was there, the top school, top hospitals, they are all started by Christians. Charity, compassion, hospital, healthcare, even university was started by Christians. Liberty, justice, labor, economic freedom, science, art, architecture, literature, music, holidays, words, symbols, and expressions. All because of lives that have been transformed. Someone say, on the basis of the historical evidence, I am fully persuaded that Jesus Christ, had Jesus Christ never walked the dusty paths of ancient Palestine, suffered, died, and risen from the dead, and never assembled around him a small group of disciples who spread out into the pagan world, the West would not have attained its high level of civilization, given, giving it the many human benefits it enjoys today, if not of Jesus Christ. Transform lives. I came across, uh, many years ago, I read about this author called Dr. Ironside, a British, American, Canadian uh, uh, pastor. Very interesting story. Uh, one day after Sunday service, he decided to go to walk, walk around in the city. And as he was walking in the city, he saw this Salvation Army band playing music and uh, sharing the gospel in the public square. About 40 of them, and this leader was conducting, playing some hymns and beautiful music. And, and the, the master, the leader who was conducting, who was conducting the, the band, uh, recognized Dr. Ironside and said, Dr. Ironside, would you like to come forth and give your testimony? Ironside said, why not? So he went forward and uh, gave his testimony. As he was sharing his testimony, at the corner of his eye, he saw this man. He, had a, he took out a card, and he was writing something. And then this man, of course, uh, Einstein recognized him. He was a, a professor. He was an agnostic. Um, he was a socialist. And so he walked over and passed the card to Dr. Einstein. And Ironside, halfway through sharing about his testimony, he flipped around the card and said, Well, this card says, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question 
agnosticism versus Christianity at in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I will pay all expenses. Please come. And Ironside read the card aloud. And then he replied, he said, I am very much interested in this challenge. I will be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. He said, I have two conditions. If this man, this gentleman, can fulfill this condition, I will debate you next Sunday at 4 p.m. at the venue that you have said. He said, first, you must promise to bring one man who was for years what we commonly call a down and out. He said, I'm not very interested as to the exact nature of the sins that wreck his life, make him outcast from society, whether a drunkard or a criminal of some kind or a victim of sensual appetite. I, 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 I don't know how, how so, but, but you must bring this man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself. And then on one occasion, somehow he heard you talk about the value and the wonderful nature of being an agnostic. And that actually transformed his life. And he became a great man, delivered completely from that environment. I want you to bring that person. He says, secondly, I want you to bring, promise to bring with you one woman who was poor, who was hopeless, outcast, the slave of evil passions and the victim of man's corrupt living, utterly lost, ruined and wretched because of her life of sin. And then this woman, same thing, entered the hall of your lecture talking about the glory, great of being an agnostic and as a result of your message, she's completely life transformed. I want you to bring along two. If you can bring along two, then I will debate you. And on my part, I will bring 100 of men and women who I just described as a result of hearing the beautiful message of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, forgiveness, set you free. And as a result of that, the life was completely transformed and turned around. I will bring along 100. And then he turned around and asked the, the master who was conducting the, the, the band, do you have some that you can spare me? And the man said, I have all my band here, mem all the band members here, 40 of them, we will come with you and we will march and play the tune of marching into the hall for you. And, uh, and Dr. Ian said, all right, you, you, I have 40 and then I will get another 60, which I don't think it will be difficult uh, to find 60 of them. And total 100. You just need to bring two. If you can fulfill that, then I will debate you. I think the gospel message is about transforming lives. And I'm sure that I'm preaching to you, you're sitting in a couch or wherever you are, and you can, as you recall back of your own life, you can testify to that. I can. I can really testify to my coming and becoming a Christian and follower of Jesus Christ. And as a result, my life is completely transformed.
I don't have uh, time to move on to another two points, a uh, more existential kind of reason where now we, I'm just talk, talking about the uh, uh, evidential side of it. Um, that we'll have to leave it for some other time. Someone, say, someone wrote this problem, uh, poem, not problem. Someone wrote this poem, say, uh, the title is called Jesus. It's a little name. It's a small word. Say this little name in public, however, in a way other than an obscenity, and stand back and watch the fireworks. This little name is like a tiny detonator that triggers a nuclear warhead. You can say God, and you won't get a squid. You can say our father or our mother in heaven, and few will flinch. You can say great spirit, and people will nod in approval. You can say Allah, and you will be deemed tolerant. You say, but when you say Jesus, and just wait for the sonic boom. Articles will appear in a paper. Reprimands will be posted from the home office. Suits will be threatened by the civil liberties block. So don't say Jesus. Jesus is divisive. And now is the time for unity. Jesus is an extremist, and that must mean right wing. Jesus is exclusive, so his name amounts to hate speech. Keep his name to yourself. Cloister it in your church. Lock it in your prayer closet. Close it between the covers of your Bible. But for God's sake, don't voice it in the public square. It is immodest, it is immoral, it is unloving. Only one problem. Jesus is God. Only one problem. Jesus alone brings salvation. Only one problem. All other gods are nothing. So speak his name aloud. Shout it from the mountain. Whisper it in the dark. Write it in the sky. That's not hate. It's hope. Jesus gives hope. I watched Billy Graham uh, funeral. Oh, sorry, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, uh, funeral on YouTube some years back. And they asked one singer to sing for, at a funeral. Beautiful song. If you have never heard of him, it's called Ortega, Fernando Ortega. Great singer, Fernando Ortega. And one of his favorite songs, one of my favorite songs is Give Me Jesus. If you don't know this song, go and type it out. Give me Jesus, Fernando Ortega. And I read this song and I close. He said, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world but give me Jesus. And when I am all alone, oh, when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. If you have not gave your heart to Jesus, I pray today 
you will go on your knees, open your arms, surrender your life to Him, and ask Him to come into your life, forgive all your sins, and give you hope, meaning to your life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for, for Jesus. Yes, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Forgive me, Jesus. He's a central figure in entire history. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us hope. You fulfill all prophecy. You have an amazing claims. You have supernatural power. And you have resurrected from the dead. And because you have risen from the dead, because of the heart of the gospel, when we give our hearts to you, you begin to transform us. You begin to change us. You begin to make us who we are called to do, to be, to shine for you, to live for you. I pray for some people watching here this morning that uh, I pray that this will strengthen their belief. They have great conviction on the heart of the gospel. And that is Jesus. That we will not stray away from this. That we will hang on to this we, because that is what the church exists for. And that is Jesus. I pray that you will strengthen our belief. And I pray for those who do not know you, have never given their hearts to you, but they come to church every Sunday. They know about Christian stuff but they have never really experienced the transforming power of Jesus. And I pray that today they'll go on their knees and give their heart to you. And I know that, Lord, today as Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come into their lives and change them and transform them to be a beautiful man and woman living for you, meaningfully, purposefully, for your kingdom's sake. Thank you, Lord. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional love, and the empowering fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore.